Well, I think the kids are on their way out to go tell it on the mountains. I enjoyed hearing them sing, and I think that was better than coffee. So if at some point, um, if I get too, if you get too sleepy, just raise your hand and suggest it. We can do a couple rounds of that, and we can get ourselves going again. But I would like to ask you to turn this morning with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking together at the account of Mary's song, Luke chapter 1, verse 46, down through verse 55. Mary's song, when she first, or not first, but when she's reflecting on the announcement that she has received. I don't know if you've ever had a, a moment in your life, just kind of a, like, a, like a dramatic turning point or inflection point, um, a phone call, an email that hits your inbox, a conversation. Just one of these, um, maybe, a, maybe, a, maybe a health diagnosis. One, one of these moments where you really, thought, you really thought the trajectory was going this way and now it's going that way. And, and probably most of us would have at least one of those, maybe a couple of those. I can think of three or four events like that, and they, they tend to go down to, you know, I was in this place. I, was sit- I remember once I was sitting on the floor, <laughs> and the phone rang. Um, these kinds of dramatic moments that just turn everything, then they get logged into your memory. And you're going to look back on that moment as, as a major transition. I think that's probably the category in which to think of what we're seeing in Luke chapter 1, the announcement that came to Mary. And if I just even back up a little bit from our passage, you can see the flow of the passage. There actually have been two announcements by this point. The initial dramatic announcement that was in that kind of category came to Zechariah. Verse 13, Luke chapter 1, verse 13. It's just this sudden announcement. Zechariah, you're an old man, and you thought that this part of your life was not going to be a thing. Okay, you're going to have a child. A little bit later now, starting in verse 26, a similar announcement. Mary, you're on the opposite side of this. You also were not expecting to have a child. You're not yet married. You're also going to have a child. And, and both of these, right? I mean, if you're thinking of these people, just kind of the, the, the punch in the stomach sort of, whoa. Um, the, the kind of feel where, if, if we bring this into the modern era, you know, you, it's not like you get to the end of the phone conversation. Okay, all right, yeah, talk to you later. Think, you know, where the last like 20 seconds, you're not, you, you, your mind's already moving to the next thing that you're going to do anyway. It's like one of those where, okay, bye, set the phone down, and your head's just, what was that? Okay. And similarly, Mary's got to be reeling following these kinds of announcements. I mean, how, really, how, how would you react just to suddenly discover? Um, and you know, we do the chronology on her, and our, we don't know, but if we do guesses and that kind of thing, it's plausible to think she's somewhere like 15 to 20, like probably late, early 20s is latest. I mean, and, and now, okay, you're going to have a baby. Nine months from now, you're a mother. 
And everybody around you is going to assume, of course, that you slept with somebody while you were engaged, while you were betrothed. All right, how do you process that? Your life is never going to be the same, never. And you're not really going to be able to convince or explain anybody, ever, (laughs) for the rest of your days. How would you react to that? I'd like to read to you how she reacted to that. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And of course, this is a bit later, but this is her reflections. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From behold, for behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is a really thick passage. It's poetry. It's You could think of it like a hymn, um, because that's one of the primary ways we regularly engage with poetry. Really, it's a psalm. This was interesting to me. You you, you could almost like block out the context before and after from the Mary said down and block out verse 56. If you just lifted out the second half of 46 down to 55, and you stuck that right between two psalms, I don't know that you would blink twice. It would fit like perfectly in the middle of, of one of the Psalms, Psalm 51, here it is. And it has a lot of parallels across the Old Testament. Actually, you want to look at this later, it's extremely parallel to Hannah's song of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2. You can go down multiple verses, especially the beginning, the end, but even things throughout, throughout the center of it. There are even phrases, it feels like Mary's almost lifted pieces of it. And dropped it in here. Of course, that's a really natural fit. Hannah's praising God because he's provided her with a child, right? So very parallel type of situation. And what follows in the middle then, or as we walk through the verses, it's, it's not just that it's beautiful poetry. This would be a bad understanding of really bad understanding of poetry. But you know, if, if you assume something like poetry, like, okay, that's going to be um, really affective. That's going to be, a, you know, a lot of thoughts and feelings. No, y- you missed it. This is profound stuff. There's thick stuff here. The Psalms is, is, is a profoundly theological book. So is this song of praise. And I want to do this right now. I want to walk down through, real quickly, but I want to walk down through the verses and, and understand the flow of the verses leading really to the question, how on earth did Mary say something so profound? This thing, this is a masterpiece. This is intricate. This is beautiful and thick. How on earth did she say this off the top of her head? 
Starting with this in verse 46, the the language of praising God. Um, Verse 46, the second half of the verse, and verse 47, those are parallel. That's a Hebrew poetry thing. And so you have the two lines that kind of line up. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. You see how they're parallel? My soul, my spirit magnifies, rejoices the Lord and God. Magnify is to make big. It, it's to take something and just, just speak of its immensity. We could think of, you know, you say magnify, it's like, oh, I take something small and I turn it into something big. Or it could just be, no, I just recognize the immensity of something that's actually there. Less like a microscope, more like a telescope. I just realize that it's huge. I was missing it until now. Now I realize. Look at the immensity of this. Notice that for Mary, to to praise God is to rejoice. Where I'm getting that is if these two are parallel, my soul magnifies or praises the Lord, my spirit rejoices. I mean, she finds joy in praising God. I think there's some, some really good help in that. Praise is not just a thing we do to go through the motions, but, but the, the vision of the New Testament, the vision of Scripture, the vision of Christianity, is that, that you reach a place by pondering God's word, by fellowshipping with God, you reach a place where to praise is the thing you would long to do. The, 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 the point where when you think of an eternity where you would stand before God and you would see him and you would praise him and just be in awe, glorious awe of him, that you get that, that you look at that and you say, that sounds amazing. And, and, and if, if you sit here this morning and it's kind of like, okay, I would just encourage you, okay, work towards it. I mean, start to read his word, hear his word, pray, know him. I guarantee by coming to the point to know him sufficiently, know his word sufficiently, love him sufficiently, you, you can know and feel this. Praise God. My soul rejoices. Wow. What could be better than to know and see and glorify him? The last part of both of those phrases magnifies the Lord, God, my Savior. It's a little, it's a little complex, beautifully complex. Um, the, the language, the Lord... Well, I mean, who does that refer to? And if you go just a little bit up in the passage, Elizabeth has just given her own cry of uh, awesome theology of praise. Uh, Verse 41, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out, verse 43, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Um, I don't think that the language mother of God is the way to go. Um, But I think the language or the idea here would be the mother of my Lord, kind of the mother of the one that I would honor, the one that I would acknowledge as my king, my Lord, my master. And, And... it's astonishing to think of this. Mary or Elizabeth, an older woman, is looking at Mary, knowing that there's an unborn child there, and saying, That unborn child, which is not yet even breathing air, is my sovereign and my king. You get a little bit later, verse 45, clearly what was spoken to her from the Lord would be. God. It's in the sense of God speaking earlier in the passage. And so when I get down to my soul magnifies the Lord, the kind of, it's like this kind of open question. I mean, what magnifies the Lord, the one who spoke to me through the vision of the angel in, in the sense of God, the triune God, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the one that I'm carrying. I mean, there's some ambiguity in there. 
And there is the space in there that, yes, Mary, as she praises God, she's also praising, it's astonishing, right? She's also, she's also honoring and praising the Savior that she carries within her at that moment. And that's even more explicit in the next phrase, my soul, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This language of the Savior is going to just stack up as you keep on going through Luke, and I'm being extremely selective here, but just the next chapter, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It shall come to pass, as we move into Acts, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Besides this Savior, of this man's offspring, Acts 13, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And that Savior language is just going to echo out through Luke and Acts, but it, it really starts here. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, the one who has brought salvation to earth through this child that Mary is carrying. Astonishing stuff. Mary's also conscious and in and, and the next section goes on to describe something about the God who has acted on our, her behalf. Verses 49 to 50. If you just look down through those verses, do you see what we, we refer to sometimes as attributes of God, characteristics of God? What do you see in verse 49 and 50 where Mary actually names several of the attributes or the nature of the aspects of God's nature. Who is he? What is he like? How does he act? And you can see three here, verse 49. He is mighty. Also in verse 49, towards the end, he is holy. Now also in verse 50, he is merciful, his mercy to those who fear him. And part of the richness of those three is that if you look earlier in the passage, you'll see echoes of these same three. He is mighty. Well, earlier in verse 37, I mean, the mighty one will do a work and Mary, or the, the reaction of the angel, is there anything too hard for God? How, how, how do I see the evidence that God is mighty as Mary has described him here? Here's a, one pretty good way to evidence it. He can do miracles like virgin births, like the incarnation. He can do miracles like sending his son to be born in the world. He can do miracles like disrupting, turning around the entire garbagey mess of the planet on which we live that we have, we have destroyed by sin and by death and rebellion against him. He can turn all of that around by sending a savior who will rise from the dead, conquer sin, and bring life. There you go. Mighty. I call that mighty. He's also holy. Earlier in the same passage, verse 35, the Holy Spirit, this is, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is referencing the, uh, the vision of the angel to Mary or the announcement of the angel to Mary earlier. In verse 35, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The Holy One who will be born to you will be called the Son of God. How about this? It is an expression of God's holiness. He, he, is, he, he brought his holy son into the world. See, but already my mind's going, whoa. <laughs> because you're, you're talking about a sinful situation and sinners and brokenness and all the complexity of all. But the holy one, the son of God, is born. And he, I mean, he is at this moment as, as Mary is speaking these things. He is, he, he is 
um, this child is being formed within her. God with us, the Holy One in our midst. <laughs> like in the, the most dramatic way of ever possibly seeing that. And finally, he is merciful. You see that here in our passage. His mercy is for those who fear him. That also appeared earlier in the passage with the angel's, angel's announcement. His first word, you have found grace with God. It would take that for a sinner like Mary, sinners like humanity, to receive a holy savior. Which I think is, is part of the significance of these three. I mean, if I'm, I'm looking again at those three Powerful, holy, merciful. And part, part of the, the paradox of the, the biblical story to this point is, is that you're, as you read, if you start at Genesis and you're working through, how can a God who is so holy and so righteous, that the God who I see at Sinai and he says, don't even touch the mountain. No, let's set up a barrier around the mountain so that no one will get destroyed. The God who must and will and does judge sin in such dramatic ways, a God who is so holy that no one could see him, approach him, the, the, the God who illustrated that holiness, even with, with all of the layers of separation in the temple and the priest and the sacrifice, and the, I mean, all those sections that we find challenging sometimes to read through, illustrations, th- this is not just a, oh, yeah, it's all chill. It's not chill. Holy. And, 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 then, then I, and, and then the tension I'm feeling, and then, but he's also merciful. If you look at that classic statement of his nature in Exodus 34, I mean, the, the Lord who judges sin, but also merciful to the thousandth generation. And so that kind of, that, that ongoing tension of the entire Old Testament, he is infinitely holy. You can't approach him. He is infinitely merciful. Come to him, huh? And in so many ways, the tension or the paradox of that has reached its nexus. It's reached its, its, its resolution at this point. You, you know from the biblical story, it, it finds its resolution so that holiness and mercy can both abide through the cross, through Jesus. He makes it possible so that God can both be righteous and justify the sinners. See, but I think part of the astonishing and beautiful thing of it is you've got it right within this passage that Mary can confess the one who is mighty and who is holy has shown mercy. How is that possible? By this child that she is in awe at right now for whom she is praising God. And most of the rest of the psalm or the song is from verse 48 really down to verse 53, wrapped around a recurring theme. Let me see if you can notice the theme. It's pretty well announced in verse 48. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. Then you can just go down. He's, verse 51, he's scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away. The, the, the pattern of this is that, that God is acting as the grand disruptor. God is taking kind of the, the layers of status or something, and he's going to turn it on its head. That those who could claim to hold might, riches, power, 
that those who, who might offer themselves up as contestants against the one who, verse 49, is the true mighty one, the holy one, and the merciful one. Anyone who could say that they are doing just great, thank you. God says that's not the way this is going to work. The Lord brings low and he exalts. That's from 1 Samuel 2, a very close parallel to this. Which is actually a huge theme. I mean, you'll recognize this then right away. Luke 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. James 4 uh, talks about this idea that, that if you would humble yourself before God, he will exalt you. First Peter 5 quotes this. And actually, if you really, if you really expand this out, you end up with like 30-something passages. This whole, the, the notion of it goes, you, you come to God offering him something. I've got wealth, I've got power, I've got skill, I've got intelligence, I've got connections, I've got experience, I've got moral rectitude, I've done life well, whatever. And he says, no, down. But he's great grateful, glad, merciful, and ready to lift up the person who comes and says, Lord, I've got nothing. I've just got, here's what I, exactly nothing. This passage, this whole notion of the proud, the rich, the mighty, the kings, they're going to be humbled. Um, it, it can get picked up, and it does get picked up, with sort of an idea, you know, God is on the side of the poor, uh, God is not the advocate to the vulnerable. God is, on the, God is in favor of those who have no recourse. And he's against those, the, the entrenched structures of power and that kind of thing. Um, and you can recognize, I mean, you can recognize, <laughs> I don't know, faint outlines or distortions of the idea that's here. Certainly that idea plays well right now. That's kind of the, the cultural mood right now. Be careful, though. You have to read a little closer than that. You know, you have this language in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor. In spirit. Right? I mean, it's not just enough to be poor. Like, poor actually, poor isn't going to get you there. Poor will get you there when it has, it has gone from a financial status to your recognizing on a spiritual level, I'm not okay. Mary actually gives us that direction within the passage itself. I mean, you, you've got it twice in here, verse 48 and again in verse 52. It's the humble estate. It's the humility notion. It, it, so it's, it's not just the axiom, or excuse me, the axis of power and vulnerability or the pow axis of wealth and poverty that God's judging. It's the axis of pride and humility. And one can manage to be proud on any number of the other parameters. You can be proud of your poverty for, if, if you really want to manage it. It can be done. It has been done. The actual, the, the actual offer or the actual hope is to those who have come to the place where they've dropped every other hope and trust. They look to God alone. And some of that, I think, is hinted throughout here. Notice in verse 51, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. I mean, in other words, the, 
Pride is poorly measured if it's just done off of numbers in bank accounts or numbers of, um, you know, like a position in a hierarchy or um, whatever other kind of tangible ways we measure this out. Truth be told, one can manage to be proud and humble in any circumstance. And I, here's where the knife just kind of gets for me. Proud in the thoughts of their heart. You want to measure yourself whether, whether you, you, can, you can claim true humility or not. Because, I mean, it is just a good, it's good, a good practice of adulting that one learns not to say the proud things out loud. <laughs> one learns to kind of, you know, what, deflect the praise or whatever because, you know, if, you know it's kind of the, the, the meme of like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, one learns to like just say the the accept, socially acceptable thing. Here's where the knife goes in for me. Yeah, and 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 what about the thoughts of the heart? And pride then in that is is it is not and should not just be measured by um, do we think that we're great? That's one expression of pride. Pride is all kinds of things. Do I think you know the thought like, well, I deserve better than this. It's not fair. I should be treated better than this. Or even just preoccupation with self. I mean, pride can be expressed in, like, I'm so awful. Oh, I'm just so awful. Oh, I'm so awful. Like, stop thinking about yourself. And here, how about this as the, the standard of the way this goes? That the one who comes to Jesus and finds hope is the one who comes and says, offer nothing help it's you it's all you so i have nothing no rights have no no entitlement no i deserve nothing help <laughs> you actually have a really good commentary on this concept that pops up in luke chapter 18 i'll just read it you don't need to turn there with me or feel free to but luke 18 it's the pharisee and the tax collector and the pharisee says god i thank you that i'm not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers even this tax collector because i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i get the tax collector stands far off he could not even lift his head to heaven he just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus comments, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts him, you know, here's our concept right there. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And it's linked to justified. <laughs> it's linked to the, the very notion we're talking about here, even a sense of God's salvation and deliverance to people. And that wraps up the song coming to verse 54 and 55, which I would just summarize as God has, back in Luke 1, God has fulfilled his promises. The, the announcement that the angel gave before to Mary really focused on promises linked to David, which is interesting, David, kingship, and those kinds of things. Here, it's linked to Abraham. And if you, if you, if you've seen some of these patterns before, the promises to David and to Abraham are two of the three really big threads that lead up to this moment. And the point of it is the promises have come true. Like all of the hopes and the longings, they've all come together. Something pretty interesting about this psalm, I said earlier, it could fit so perfectly if you just lifted it and you dropped it right between two other psalms or you know, we just expanded the Psalter, Psalm 50, 151 or something. It feels so 
Old Testament. And, and among, I mean, I was just thinking about this. If I, if I listed out passages across the New Testament that feel like they were just lifted out like that, or a poetry section like, I mean, this is pretty much right at the top. It, it's almost like a bit of the Old Testament kind of like washed over and like a little piece of the Old Testament in the beginning of the New or something. I mean, it's in Greek, not Hebrew, and yet the Greek that it is here, it kind of sounds like Old Testament flavor to it in different ways. And I, I think the significance of that is that, that it's in this transition, it's, it's like God has on purpose picked up the threads of the Old Testament and he's going to pull them all together and he's going to tie the threads of that, that, that tapestry together. He's going to say, look at this, okay? Tie all that together. Here's a last, it's kind of like, here's a last psalm for the Messiah. The Old Testament promises have come together They've all reached their, their focus point. He's it. He's it. Because of the last line of the psalm, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. If you recognize that, Genesis twenty two eighteen, the promise to Abraham that his descendant would be a blessing to the world, which is picked up in Galatians 3, and Paul interprets that and says, descendant, sing, descendant, who do you think that? That's Christ. Paul says, that's Christ. And Mary just drops this at the end, and to his offspring forever. And I'm reading that to Abraham and to the Messiah, Jesus. Forever, here it is. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years, forever, here it is. The Messiah has come. So I'm going to ask my question, which is, I mean, if I go down through that, that was impressive. And trust me, I mean, you know, the, the, I'm happy to send you more stuff on this, on this song, but I mean, the volume of stuff that is just beautiful and rich and thick, the number, just the number of passages, just trying to like attach all of the passages that Mary's pulling and, and, and stringing together, weaving in and out. She's picking up stuff from all over the Old Testament. It's incredible. It's, it's hard to just even get them all in and <laughs> so many. It's, it's, it's incredible. Intricate, a literary masterpiece. I mean, it's full of illusions. She's got the attributes of God. She's got connections back to the angel's speech to her. It's like all in, and so I mean, I'm looking at all that going, I'm, I'm looking at all that going, and Mary came up with that? What on earth? This is actually a discussion about the passage. Big discussion about the passages. We're talking about a, a young woman, Jewish woman, Probably, I mean, is she literate? Maybe not. Probably plausible to think that she's not. She definitely does not have it. It's not like she, she pulls out her, her Bible app or even pulls out her copy of the Bible. Her only access to the Old Testament is to go to the synagogue and hear it read out loud to her. She did this? And I, I would comment on that, you know, if it, it could be tempting after we walk through all of that, all of the things that she said there, it could be tempting to make an application, something like, look at Mary, look at all that she, she, she knew and how she interpreted what just happened to her through the lens of a biblical theology. It's, in, it's incredible. Read your Bible, be like Mary, so that if something like this happens to you, you'll be able to rattle off a masterpiece like it. Um, if, if that was my application, I think I did it wrong. 
I don't think this is a testimony to Mary and her masterful skills. <laughs> Let's recognize that both women, Elizabeth and Mary, I would suggest in this passage, are speaking better than they know or can know. I have a little bit of an indication in that if you go up the, the initial interaction when Mary reached Elizabeth in verse 40, Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The baby, baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed. And I, 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 pretty fascinating there. Mary doesn't even walk up to Elizabeth and say, I'm, it's not even, I'm pregnant. I mean, there's not even a, there's not even a notification or something. I mean, Mary just received the word, so it's not like, it's not like Mary's showing or something. It, um, it's not like Elizabeth would expect that Mary's pregnant. Like, Elizabeth knows something's up because of the Zachariah announcement, and Elizabeth at this point is, is six months. So, I mean, she knows something's up, and she knows that Messiah is coming soon, but why on earth would she look at Mary and think Mary's pregnant? She's not even married. Mary just walks up, and Elizabeth goes, this, what's going on? There's the answer right there. The spirit of the Lord filled Elizabeth. I mean, Elizabeth is speaking better than she knows. That's going to become a pattern if you keep on going out through Acts and so on. And so it, it does naturally follow that when Mary turns around and speaks all of these words, I mean, does Mary understand what she's saying? Yes. Is she conscious? Yes. It's not, not like she went into some kind of, I don't know, paranormal state or something. But, but she's speaking with words that are, this absolutely past her pay grade. God's giving something here. And, and part of even my support for that is if you keep on going through the pattern with Mary, you can read about it in Mark 3, 21. You can read about it in Luke chapter 8, John chapter 2. You've got these points in Mary's life when, honestly, um, she was confused. I mean, there are times when Mary, in Mary's life where she doesn't get what's going on. And for her here to speak with such wisdom, it, Mary's words are a product of the Spirit of God. Which actually then brings me back around to make the point I would like us to conclude with this morning and just to, to process together a little bit. See, I, I said, if, if you read through this and you go, Mary's awesome, way to go, Mary, and that's your read of the passage. If, if your conclusion of the passage is, what a, what a lady, I mean, Mary herself would, would call foul on that. I think Mary's response to that within the passage, could you read what I said again? Is the whole point of the passage is, that God has blessed her as a humble person. Read humble not as like, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty great, but I try to think thoughts, negative thoughts about myself. Read humble as legitimately like, yeah, I mean, just objectively not important, objectively not interesting, like objectively not standing above anyone else, just really not significant at all. That's me. That's Mary's comment. That's the way to view me. Except for one, one simple thing, and that is she has looked at God with this expression of humble faith. Lord, I got nothing. She has chosen to fear God. 
she has chosen to come to him. Um, you know, obviously, Mary and the exaltation of Mary then has subsequently become a major part of the history of some expressions of, quote, Christianity. And, and it has become part of the culture of some of those expressions of Christianity. Never got to it, but I thought it would have been interesting to go through and look and just kind of tabulate. Like, how many, how many uh, cities, towns, churches, institutions, places, would there be even be a way to try to attempt to calibrate how many of those would have some kind of connection to, like, the Annunciation or the Virgin or some of that? I mean, in terms of world history, huge. And so you could look at that and go, like, yeah, like she said, generations will call me blessed. I don't think that's the fulfillment of that. Here's the expression of, of, of blessed in the sense that Mary was blessed. Mar- Mary's blessing, I mean, to, you know, to, to, to carry the Messiah who will be the savior of the world, it's tremendous, extraordinary honor, but, but, but critical to recognize Mary doesn't come at the front of the line before or behind anybody else. How does Mary come to Jesus? Mary comes to Jesus the same way anyone ever has. She comes to him as a sinner in desperate need of faith, not as the mother, but as the sinner. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Her affiliation with the Messiah was that she came as a disciple of Jesus. Together, Acts 1, you see her together with the other disciples worshiping and praising him, just another disciple. And that brings me then to the encouragement that that if you were to if you were to if you were to seek to come to Jesus, have access to Jesus, be able to speak to Jesus, come before his throne, make a request of him. I mean, if you wanted any kind of hold on him that he would listen to you, right? I mean, this is the, the whole the whole the whole underlying framework for thinking about Mary as a, a co-redemptress thing. The whole idea of Mary as special status is can't access Jesus, but I could ask his mother and she would be able to kind of, okay, that notion, if you were to have any kind of access to speak to Jesus, how would you come? Let me give you your access. You come humbly. You come desperate. You come with faith. You come like Mary. Not Mary the co-redemptress thing. Mary the sinner. Mary the desperate sinner says, God has seen my humble state, and I'm going to be blessed. How is Mary blessed? You can be blessed like that too. Your access to Jesus comes the same way. How would you take this song and live it or react to it? I mean, there are a lot of directions I could go with it. I could just emphasize rejoice that the Messiah has come. That's kind of what we did earlier. <laughs> go tell the good news on the mountain. I mean, it, the rejoicing of singing together, even the season and the rhythm of life and the structure of things such that we come to this part of the year and, and our attention together, all together at the same time, our turn to focus on this event. I mean, you ought to be in awe every year. Be in awe. Read the passages, think through the passages, and just be astounded. You've got this pattern of rejoicing in Luke Right here in Luke chapter 1, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. I mean, take Christmas, the the celebration, and those who get the point of it as just a worldwide season when many rejoice at his birth. Here, we're all doing it together. 
And, and that got started right within our passage when Mary walked up before Elizabeth and the baby in her womb was the first person, or I guess the second person, to rejoice at the birth. The baby got it. The forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, got started with his ministry of pointing to the Messiah even before he was born because he rejoiced at the birth of the Messiah. So did Mary in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Okay, there you go. John the Baptist, Elizabeth, Mary, your turn. Rejoice at the birth of the Messiah. I could go the direction of just um, the trust that's expressed here. I said Mary and Elizabeth spoke better than they knew. And, I mean, they've both received astonishing announcements that are kind of like, whoa, I don't, how do you even, like, how would you even process all the implications of it? I mean, and... 2,000 years later, we haven't managed yet to process all the implications of the coming of the Messiah, right? But I think there is some richness in that, that they, I mean, they, they moved forward on something that God had spoken without understanding all the details of it yet, and it's, okay, <laughs> this is awesome. I don't even get all the details. I don't Thank you. <laughs> um. I think that's exactly parallel to where we are today, right? I mean, we've received the gospel. We've received the truth about Jesus Christ. It's so transformative. Do I still have questions about scripture and theology and how God's going to bring all of this together in a way that ends beautifully? Yeah, like a lot. But man, the things he's told me are they're astonishing. Each time he opens an, an, a, just another vista into the richness of all of his plans, I'm astonished all over again. So why would, why would I not expect that eternity is going to cause me to turn around and be astonished? In the meantime, is there, is there stuff here that kind of stings and that I can't understand and that kind of leaves me with, yeah, like a lot of those too? Mary also rejoiced in the coming of her Savior, though it meant that for the rest of her life there would be this kind of well-known and well-acknowledged, it's brought up in John chapter 8, 41, it's it, a well-acknowledged blot on her life that people would think that, that she, she sinned in the middle of her betrothal. There it is. She's going to carry that, but it's okay. She's going to walk forward in faith. I, I could focus on the set of things that Jesus set aside. I mean, I said God is the grand disruptor. And so he scatters the proud. He breaks down the mighty, the rich he has sent away. I, I think it'd be very fair to go down, you know, okay, proud, powerful, wealthy, or just keep on filling it out. And whatever are the kinds of things that, that, we, would, that we would look at and say, like, well, I'm a good guy, or I'm doing life well, or I'm succeeding because I have, or I am, or I achieved, or I do. And whatever you put into those boxes, that's kind of a, a, um, a self-acquired sense of, of significance. And, and, and here, just expect this, that, that Jesus came to, to disrupt all of that, scatter it. Like here, you know, you got your carefully curated, all of, all of your nice things set out before you on the table, like, this is pretty good. And, 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 and the gospel comes and goes, not okay. <laughs> all right, so invest in those things or have your hopes set in those things. I'd say no. Where I, where I, where I really want to 
sink our attention this morning, though, is that this, this notion I said earlier that God humbles the proud, he exalts the humble. And so I'm, I'm going to go to the, the flip side of it. If the, the beauty and the essence of the gospel, come, to, come, come before God with nothing in your hands. Come before God with nothing in your <laughs> I'm going to bring something to God. Problems. Here's my offering, sin, and mess, and chaos, and just a lot of, like, um, here's what I, here, here is my side in the negotiating table. I, I bring a whole complex mess of things to, to be resolved. That's my side of the, nego- that's what I can offer when I negotiate. And, and God looks at that and says, now you're ready. Now you get it. And so if you came in this morning and you felt a little bit this um a little bit the sting or the struggle or the pain, you know, I don't I'm not enough. I'm not I'm not sufficient. I am not okay. I got problems and I need help. Like I got a I got a complex, convoluted turgid mess in my heart and I could use I could use miraculous help the promise of the gospel is okay okay Jesus speaks to you come to him with confidence and see it is part of the richness of the gospel that the very same truth and the very same framework offers to those people hope Jesus offers you beautiful hope at the same time that if you come to him and it's like I I'm doing pretty well, but let's see if Jesus can help me reach my full potential. The gospel says no. Right? Jesus is not an adjunct to your plans. Jesus, Jesus replaces the plans. Full stop, period, done. He replaces the plans. He replaces your significance. He is your significance. The one who comes to him and finds hope and help and healing is the one who comes to him with nothing. But to those who come, the poor in spirit, he offers the kingdom of heaven. To those who come and offer to him mourning, they'll be comforted. To those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be fed, you'll be filled, you'll be satisfied story of the gospel and the song of Mary that points to that gospel is a story of hope for the desperate. And the call then of this song and of this morning, come to him. Come to him empty of hands. Look to him. and Jesus will offer you hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the Messiah, the anointed one, who came himself a testimony to this notion that it is possible to set aside everything to come with humility. And that he himself came, astonishingly, in humility. And that as a result of that, God has exalted him exalted him above all. 
And then we ponder this morning the hope. I mean, the brilliant offer and invitation that, that, uh, that we, mere humans, no, broken humans, humans, humans with convoluted messes, that we can come to him and to us also, he offers hope and the promise that we will be exalted in, in, in the, the clearest and truest sense. We will be made like Jesus to dwell with him forever, to worship and know him forever. Help us, Father, I pray, even right now as we have a couple of moments to, to ponder and to make personal application, help us this morning to seize on the hope and to do so in humility. Help us this morning to absolutely lay aside and please reveal to us this morning any aspect of self-sufficiency that would keep us from the cross. I do want to give us a second together just as we pause here. Will you, will you ponder here? I'm going to give us a minute or two. I mean, take, take this and make this tangible and personal expressing before God as as Mary expressed before God but expressing before him and recognizing specific and tangible ways that I ought to come to him you ought to come to him desperate unresolved things that you need to work out and on the other flip side where you and I have a kind of self-sufficient confidence to lay those things aside come to him with empty hands and find in him hope 